You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. By the fourth book, I realized I had gone down the rabbit hole. And I, I didn't mean to. Uh, no one ever means to, right? It's just, it happens. Like you have a thought, you read an article, somebody says something to you, and you Google it, and you find a couple of more articles, and there's a video or two to watch, and then you run across this book, and you order it, and you read the book, and they quote another book, and you read another book, and you know, before you know it, you're doing graduate-level research on something. And um, I, I want to say it happens fast. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Like this one has been going on for about 8 to 10 months uh, for me. And it started with this guy right here. Uh, Tom Rayner was the former president of Lifeway Christian Research. He's since left and is doing his own thing. He's written this book. I haven't read his book, but this was like back in October he was talking about predictions for the post-quarantine church, like the post-COVID church. And, and he didn't know, nobody knew at the time. He was saying, these are a few things that I see that are going to happen as the church emerges from uh, the pandemic. And he offered five or six predictions. I only remember three of them because so far I think those three have come true. Uh, they were, number one, he said there's going to be an extremely high rate of turnover in churches. This was a prediction. He said churches are going to see an extremely high rate of turnover, meaning that a lot of the, the people who've been a part of the church are no longer going to be a part of the church. They're either going to find new churches during that time, or their attendance patterns are going to change, or some of them are going to say, hey, you know, we like online. And I've had folks tell me that, like, we, we really like the online option, and I, we're going to stay. You know, so you're not going to see them return to in-person, so that's going to be different, or... Um, you know, maybe people fall out of the habit of going to church altogether because 15, 16 months is plenty of time to form new habits. And so maybe people just completely fall out of the habit. So there's going to be a lot of folks that, that you've seen on a regular basis on Sunday morning that you're not going to see anymore. And at the same time, there's going to be a lot of new people coming into the church. There's going to be a lot of new families that come to the church. So the church, is, there's going to be, like, if you've been online the whole time through this pandemic and you come back, you're going to see a lot of new faces here. And, and we've experienced that too because the last two new member classes we've done, step one, uh, have been two of our biggest classes. And then I looked the other day, we've got 50 people waiting to go through it. Like, that's people that have visited within the last two months that are just, that are just brand new. So there's going to be a, a big rate of turnover. And he was, he was right about that one so far. He was right. The second thing he predicted was that attendance, in-person attendance, I should say, will not return to pre-pandemic levels. He said, just, just get ready. It's, it's, you know, it's going to look different. And he, he makes some predictions on percentages and that kind of stuff. And I, we won't get into the weeds on all that. I won't go down the rabbit hole and all of that. But he's just basically saying, like, people's attendance patterns are going to change as a result of the pandemic. And it was already kind of trending that direction where people, even people who are faithful to church, attended less frequently than before. And he said the pandemic's just going to accelerate that. So people who maybe came every single Sunday before the pandemic might come two or three times a month after or maybe those that came two or three times a month before might come once a month or maybe every other month or something like it's just going to change you're going to see you know some churches are celebrating like hey we got 50 percent of our people back we got 60 percent of our people back in person in services and and that's a win and he says that's that's kind of a new reality churches are going to have to to get adjusted to that and i, I don't know that we're 100 percent post-pandemic yet but so far he's been he's been fairly accurate on that as well 
And the third prediction was churches are going to have to rethink the way they do church. And that's where my rabbit hole started. <laughs> because for the last 8 to 10 months, 15 months if you will, that's kind of what myself and our staff and our elders, we, we've been doing. It's like we're, we're rethinking like how do we do church? Is the way that we've always done church the way that we're going to continue to do church? And the, the way it started for me, and I'll, I'll get into the story in just a, just a minute, but the way it started for me was I started sensing this growing unease with what, I, what I'm terming as megachurch culture. Okay, over 50% of Americans attend a megachurch. So most, uh, 50% of the people who attend church on a Sunday morning attend a megachurch. And a megachurch, by definition, is any church over 2,000 members. Um, there's, we're usually familiar, that's Willow Creek right there, and they've, I don't know, 40, 50, 60,000 members. At some point, I don't know how you count your members anymore, but Saddleback, you know, you, North Point, you, you've heard of some of these big, huge megachurches. And I started, during the last six months, just get uneasy with that. And I, I hesitate to call it a megachurch culture. What I'm really saying is I've started to get uncomfortable with church culture <laughs> because all churches have been influenced by these churches, all churches of all sizes have been influenced by these churches because their pastors are famous and they write lots of books and they host conferences and they invite smaller churches to come to the larger churches and say, look at how we do church. And if you do this, then you might be able to grow like we grow. Our staff's been to tons of conferences at mega churches. I've read tons of books. So I've been influenced by all of these guys. Okay. When I tell you, know, Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, Bill Hybels, I don't know any of those guys, but those guys have had an impact on my ministry. Not just like theologically, like how I practice ministry, but also like the small things. Like I'm preaching from a table and a stool today. You know who started that? Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley took his pulpit away and started preaching from a little table. And suddenly, all pastors across America are preaching from little tables because they watch that on YouTube and go, ooh, that's cool. That, that's got a neat vibe to it. I think I'm going to do something like that. We've got a, a class at this church called Step One. It used to be called Murray Hills 101. You know where we got that idea? 25 years ago, Rick Warren started Saddleback 101. And every, just about every church in America has got a new member class now. And that largely started because Rick Warren wrote about it in a book called The Purpose Driven Church. And so, I, you know, when I say I'm growing uncomfortable with mega church culture, I'm talking about a culture that I have tried to emulate. I'm talking about I'm growing uncomfortable with myself is what I'm talking about, okay? And, and maybe to an extent growing uncomfortable with, with us. I mean, with Murray Hills, because what I'm, we're not a mega church by any stretch of the imagination. We're not a mega church. But just like any church, we pick up some of those habits and trends, and, and we, that's kind of the way the way that we do uh, church. And I think when I look back in my younger days of ministry, I probably wanted to be one of those. Because that, that to me, you know, that's the, epi you know, the epitome of success and faithfulness. And look at this, you know, growth is an indication of how well you do ministry. Or growth is an indication of how good your church is and all those kinds of things. And I think younger Russ probably wanted to be one of those. And I'm, I'm not so sure about that anymore. <laughs> And it started during the pandemic, like you're talking about rethinking the way you do church, because suddenly we're all at home, and suddenly every church in our country is streaming services. And so I, I won't ask for a show of hands here. I know some of you cheated on us during the pandemic, 
right? You know what I mean by that? Like you watched Murray Hills, but then, oh, I really like this preacher over here, and I watched this guy, and I watched this. I really like their worship over here. Like we, wa- we ended up watching multiple church services, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I started doing the same thing. I started watching multiple church services, and I, I got attracted to the mega churches. I started watching the way that these big churches do their online services because I started out looking for like ideas like, hey, maybe we could do this at Murray Hills, and we could do this, we could do this, we could change this a little bit. I started out doing that, but I started getting uncomfortable because it just, it all felt the same. Like it was every, it, I don't know how to describe it, and I'm, it's, it's, please don't. I'm uncomfortable even talking about this because it feels like I'm being critical. Uh, but I just, like, it felt like every one of the services were just, were reading out the same playbooks, following the same formula, like the worship was the same, the host kind of moment was the same, the, the preaching was, was the same. It was like, it was like there, was this, there was this formula that, like a franchise model type thing or something, that just every church was kind of doing the same thing. And then there was a, a, some type of celebrity aura around the preacher or the worship leader, just depending upon the, the emphasis of that church. But they're like, there was a celebrity aura around the pastor. And there was one of them, and they're not anywhere near here. So, uh, you know, you'll you have, you have to Google long and hard to find this one. But it, it was like, there was one of them that when the pastor came out to preach, the whole church stood on their feet for 30 to 45 seconds and cheered, and he kind of hyped everybody up. They were cheering, you know, 30, 45 seconds, and then, then they sat down, and he was, you know, he was telling a story about, you know, when I was back in the green room getting ready for this service, and I was like, man, this feels off. This is, like, that just, something doesn't, and I even, like, went back. This is, remember the rabbit hole? I went back, like, I got to see if this happens every Sunday or if this is just a special Sunday, you know, and every Sunday they do this 30-second standing ovation for the pastor, and I'm like, I, I don't know, just something, it was feeling off, and I couldn't really kind of put it into words even why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And I'm not even a part of these churches, I'm just watching. Part of the problem may have been, no offense online, please don't take offense, part of the problem may have been I was just watching. I wasn't participating. It's hard to gauge the authenticity of something when you just watch it. You know, when you're a participant and you're in the room and you know the people and you know, you know, like, yeah, I know Tiffany and I know when she does that, that that's not, that, that, you know, that's real, you know, because I know her and we've got a relationship together. So, so maybe that's part of it. But uh, I said something in staff meeting to our staff and I was like, just talking about it, like the authenticity and the real and, you know, like, what, what kind of church do we want to be? What does Murray Hills want to be? What do we want to look like as we come out of this pandemic? What do we want to look like? And Todd, I want to take you through the rabbit hole real quick. Todd said, you need to read a book called A Church Called Tove, which is by uh, Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer, forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. And both of these guys were members of Willow Creek. I mentioned Bill Hybels as one of my heroes. Um, Bill Hybels had a very tragic fall from ministry that I, it took me a while to get over. Not because not I know him, I don't know him, but I'd always looked up to and respected him. But what I didn't realize, what he, that he had created a culture around him, or maybe Willa Creek created the culture around him, around his kind of celebrity persona, and it created a toxic environment where he got to do whatever he wanted, and a lot of people got hurt in the process. And so this book was written up kind of about that, but it was more about, hey, church ought to make us good. <laughs> when we prote- church shouldn't lead to, to celebrity pastors, and it shouldn't lead to 
you know, church brands and all this stuff. Church ought to be good. It ought to be a place of good and wholeness and all. So, so I read that book, and I was like, wow. And I've, I think Ebony's reading that book now, and Tim's reading that book, and maybe Scott's reading that book, because I'm like, oh, y'all got to read this book. I got to read this book. Well, then Scott said, if you like that book, then you need to read this one right here, Preachers and Sneakers. Okay? Authenticity in an Age of For-Profit Faith and Wannabe Celebrities. I hated this book. I really did. I mean, I, I read it in a day. I hated it that much. I read it in a day. And uh, honestly, I pulled out uh, sneakers to wear today, and I put them back up because I knew I was going to mention this book, and I couldn't. Um, but this, <laughs> I hated this book because it was, it was so convicting. And it was like, it, it, it was like, it was, I was reading it going, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Wait, they're talking about me. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, it's like it hit too close to home. And I, and I told Scott after I read it, I said, that guy's a hypocrite because he goes to a mega church and his wife works at a mega church. And he's calling them out. And it's just don't read it, okay? I'm just telling you, like if you're already cynical about church culture, don't read it. It'll make you more cynical about church culture. That led me to this book right here, Blessed by Kate uh, Bauer, and she's a professor at Duke, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. Now, the reason I read this one was because the guy from Preachers and Sneakers quotes this book a lot, and I was like, hmm, what's that book about? And so I, I went and I read that one, and this one is a little bit more of an academic approach to it, but she goes through the entire history of the prosperity gospel, and a lot of the church, megachurches, not all of them, but a lot of the megachurches are prosperity gospel churches. Maybe not as overt as a, you know, Kenneth Copeland or a I don't know, Crefro uh, Dollar or one, John Hagee, not, not as overt as that, but Willow Creek, I began to see is like, that's, there's a lot of prosperity gospel in that. It was a lot of, hey, if you're faithful, then you'll be a good business leader. If you're faithful, then you'll be successful. If you're faithful, then you'll be a good leader. You know, there's was, there was a lot of that. So, so I read that book, and then that led me to this book right here, and I, I'm almost done with this one. I tried to finish it this morning, but God greed in the prosperity gospel how truth overwhelms a life built on lies. Look who that's written by. You recognize that name, the last name. That's the nephew of Benny Hinn. In 2017, he rejected the prosperity gospel and began to call out his uncle and his father on the things um, that they were teaching. And by now, I've already started looking for another one on the prosperity gospel, and please forgive me. But because uh, Benny, I mean, Costi's written several, so I'm interested in them now. By now, you should be asking. Okay, that's interesting, but what does your rabbit hole have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Aren't we talking about the Sermon on the Mount? I thought we were in a study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we absolutely are in a Sermon on the Mount, and my rabbit hole had absolutely nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount until this week. And this week, when I opened up my Bible to read what Jesus said in the section that we decided to talk about today, my rabbit hole met the teaching of scripture and it starts in verse 13 here it is enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves by their fruit you will recognize them do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not exactly an encouraging part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not exactly the part of the Sermon on the Mount where everybody goes, oh, my favorite part of the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. That's the one that I get the most encouragement from. But it's there for a reason. And, and I'm not trying to say that all megachurches represent the wide gate. I'm not trying to say that every preacher who happens to be famous is a false prophet. Um, I'm not trying to say that everyone who follows him is a false disciple. Because I'd have to rank me as a false disciple if that's the case. But what I'm trying to do is take what Jesus teaches here And pull it forward into the 21st century and ask, how does it apply today? Because Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. Jesus is not talking about, you know, famous, well, he is talking about famous pastors. They're just Pharisees, okay? So Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is couched on refuting what the Pharisees have taught. Because the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They are the religious establishment. If the Pharisees could, they would be the ones writing the books and hosting the conferences and inviting everybody to come. Come, see how to do church. Because this is the way we do church or synagogue or whatever the time, you know. This is the way you do it. Because we are so accustomed, we're so familiar with our New Testament that we see the Pharisees as bad guys. Like when we read the Pharisees, we're like, those are the bad guys. And they are. But at that time, they were the good guys. Like this is the, these are the people who are very religious. These are the people who are very faithful. These are the people who are very successful in following out their faith. And Jesus is giving a word of warning to say, be careful who you follow. Just be careful. Remember, he started the sermon by saying, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And so he's just saying, just be be careful. It's a word of warning, or it's a caution. And um, I, I think that just because, I mean, if you want to interpret what Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, just because a lot of people are doing it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Just because somebody uses all the right language doesn't necessarily mean that that is authentic that faith is real just you know i mean that's like if you look into that it's and that's where i started this this whole i tried to do a one word summary of every text that i taught through and originally this one word summary for this text was fruitfulness because it is what jesus talks about but if i if i had it to do over again i would i would rename this one authenticity because i think that's what jesus is so frustrated about with the Pharisees. Remember, the religious establishment, I think the thing that frustrated Jesus with the religious establishment of his day was they were not authentic. And he calls them out numerous, you know, like you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside, everything looks pretty, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And, and you're, like, you, you're straining gnats and swallowing camels. You give a, give a tenth of you know, all your spices, but then you, you neglect matters like justice and, and mercy. And like, I mean, Jesus calls them out over and over. And when he says to the, to the people, you know, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, that's what he's talking about. Like, your righteousness has got to be a real righteousness, not a false righteousness, not an external righteousness. It's got to be a real righteousness. And I think his issue there is 
authenticity. Don't shout, Lord, Lord, if you don't really mean it. And your prophecies and your miracles and your works doesn't mean anything unless they come from a place of authenticity. Don't make a show out of your worship if it's not really here. If it's not, Jesus doesn't need a hype man, is what I'm saying. Uh, Jesus doesn't uh, need more followers on social media. Jesus doesn't need a platform. You know, I'm just building my platform so that we can reach more people with the gospel. Uh, Jesus doesn't need church merch. Um, (laughs) Jesus needs faithful hearts. And that's really all he's asking for. Michael Wilkins, this is a commentary I've been using as I've studied through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Michael Wilkins, and he says, Jesus never emphasizes the external as being the highest sign of authenticity. He demands our inward allegiance to God's will, which will produce the fruit of a changed life. And I think almost culturally in America today, and even in our church culture, we have flipped that around to where it's almost the opposite. We determine authenticity based on all the external signs. And Jesus is warning us that those can be misleading. I mean, you can come across externally in a much different way than you are internally. And he's just saying, like, just, just, just be careful there. Because what, what God is looking for, and that reminds you, that's not even Jesus that, that talks about that. That goes back in the Old Testament. You remember when God chose uh, David, what did he say? You know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's what matters most to God is is what's going on in the heart. And I think that a lot of times we've emphasized the external expressions of our faith as the highest value of our faith while discounting or sometimes completely ignoring the fruit that it produces. And that's really our standard should not be. Well, how cool is the worship or, you know, or how cool, how great is the sermon or how, how awesome is the children's ministry or um, how cool are the screens or, you know, like those are the kind of external standards. And you, you know, I'm not talking about other churches here. I'm preaching about Murray Hills because we got a cool children's ministry and a decent preacher and good, great worship and all that, you know, like I, you know, I'm talking about us, but that should not be the standard of determining whether or not this is a good church, or that's a good ministry, or, or I'm, I'm serving God in the way that I should be serving. The standard is what Jesus offers right here. He says, thus by your, their fruit you will recognize them. Because every ministry will have results. Every church will have members. Every pastor will have followers. Every Christian will produce some type of fruit in their life. But Jesus is saying, is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? Now, just the fact that you produce fruit doesn't mean anything. And I, I said this, this was years ago that this happened. It was in the old First Baptist building, actually. Um, in a message, I said something about, I was defending a, a prosperity preacher, and I won't, I won't tell you the name of who it was, but I was, I was just, I'd kind of, hey, everybody's dumping on this guy, and I don't think you should be, because look at his church. Look how fast it's growing. You know, it's grow- if, if somebody's church is growing that fast, then they got to be doing something right, right? I mean, come on. I mean, grow- health, uh, growth comes from health. So if you, you're growing that fast, you must be doing something right. If you're not growing, then you must be doing something wrong. And um, somebody talked to me after the message and said, uh, yeah, that's not exactly a great analogy because cancer grows too. In other words, like there's, there's good growth and there's bad growth. I mean, that's like just, just because it's growing, that's not necessarily a sign of fruitfulness. And so it's like, well, what is the proper sign of fruitfulness then? If I want to know whether or not I'm truly growing as a believer or whether or not I'm truly, you know, what's the signs? Well, I would encourage you to flip back. Start in chapter 5, verse 3, and start reading. 
because that is the fruit that we are supposed to produce, is the fruit that we are producing. Are people becoming more humble as a result? Are people becoming more compassionate? Are people becoming kinder? Are people saying, this is less about me and it's more about others? Are people becoming less judgmental? Are people becoming less angry? Are people becoming more faithful and committing to their, their relationships in their lives and the, and the vows that they have made? Are people becoming more spiritual? Not in the sense of, look how spiritual they are on the stage, but are they becoming more spiritual as in they pray in their closet and they give without you knowing and they fast and nobody knows it? You know, are people not making a show out of their faith? Are people becoming more trusting and not worrying as much? Is people becoming more, more open and willing to, to ask God for the things that they need? Are people becoming more inclusive? Like if you just read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's the fruit that our lives should be producing. Our lives should be producing the fruit that is consistent with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Not, you know, not the external signs that we tend to look at. But am I becoming... Well, these are the questions I wrote right here. Does it produce humility, mercy, compassion, kindness, faithfulness, forgiveness, putting others first, authenticity, inclusiveness, grace, less of me and less of us, and more of him? Those are the themes of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus invites us to make a choice and to say, do you want to make this the foundation of your faith or your church or your ministry? Do you want to make this the foundation of it? Or do you want to make other things the foundation of it? Because the other thing, if you want to make other things the foundation of it, it will not survive the storm. And sadly, we've seen a lot of those pastor stories. It will not survive the storm. Because you, you, you're building it on a foundation of sand. And eventually a storm is going to come and wipe it all out. But if you're going to build it on something firm... As in, you know, th th then, then it will survive the storm. And the storm's coming. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. The storm's coming regardless. But if you build it on something firm, it will survive the storm. And so Jesus is saying, you got to make a choice. Do you want to be wise or foolish? And that's where we'll go next week. I think I've only got six verses left. And we'll, be, we'll wrap up our study of the Sermon on the Mount. But starting in verse 24 is where we're going to go next week. Just six more verses left in the study. So let me, let me say a word of prayer for us. i got just a couple of things to, to tell you before we leave, and, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for your word when it cuts. And it, it cuts me a little bit today. Um, and I, I guess it was coming with the rabbit hole you've been taking me down. But um, I, I pray that you help us all of us in, in this room, to help, help us just to embrace a life of humility. It's very difficult. Our ego likes to get in the way. My ego likes to get in the way. Uh, help us to put our ego aside and to embrace humility because that's the example your son gave us. Uh, help us to not be judgmental. And I know that's hard for me to pray in a message like that because I, I struggle if, if I am being judgmental about some things that I don't fully understand or know about. But... Um, Help us to kind of put that aside and to just simply accept people for who they are and accept each other for who we are. And, and those things, like, help us to do that. Um, that's the example your son set for us. Help us to be graceful and merciful and kind and forgiving. And um, just help us to be authentic. I, I think 
you know, one of the things that attracted people to Jesus was he was just, he was a real person. And so help us to be real with the people that we interact with on an everyday basis. Help us to do that as a church too, as well. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.